we are going to go right back to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to go to chapter 9 this morning as we are continuing to look at God's people responding to God's word. That's sort of what we saw in chapter 8, is God's word being read and the people responding to it. And we saw the people experience the power of God's word to change and correct their disobedience. And we're going to see another part of that process as, as God is leading and restoring the people. Um, and as I was getting ready for today, while you're finding Nehemiah 9, I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite characters in all of animated cartoons, and that's Charlie Brown. Who are, who are Peanuts fans? You'll just raise your hand and say, man, for my whole life, for my entire life, I've been a fan of Charles Schultz Peanuts. Um, huge, huge fan. And uh, Charlie Brown probably is the one Peanuts character that I identify more with more than anybody because I often find myself feeling like a blockhead, as maybe you do too. If, if you're a Peanuts fan, you'll know that one of the most memorable and philosophical quotes that Charles Schultz ever put into the mouth of Charlie Brown, um, he, he did it a lot. Charles Schultz was an amazing writer, and he put some pretty profound truth into his Peanuts comic strips, but but what Charlie Brown is probably most famous for, the quotation that's most memorable for Charlie Brown, is good grief. Right? And that's an interesting phrase because those are two things that we really don't think about going together. Goodness and grief. Because when we're experiencing times of goodness in our life... That very seldom brings grief. But then when we are experiencing grief, it doesn't really feel good. So that's kind of an interesting phrase that we use from time to time, that phrase good grief. And it makes me wonder, is there such a thing as good grief? Is there such a thing as grief that's good? And I think that we will see a picture of that. I think the answer to that is yes. There is a grief that's good. And I think we're going to see a picture of it in chapter 9. Now, yes, we are going to try to cover the whole chapter today, okay? So I'm going to try to go kind of fast. I see some eyebrows going up. We're going to try to go kind of fast, um, so I want you to hang on tight with me. But this is a really, really important uh, chapter in Nehemiah. I want us to start with the first three verses, and I want us to look at some things in that, and then, we're gonna, and then we're gonna go through the rest of the chapter together as well. But Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, says, On the 24th day of this month, the Israelites assembled. They were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. While they stood in their places, they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a fourth of the day and spent another fourth of the day in confession and worship of the Lord, their God. So the overall picture that we see in chapter 9 is a picture of confession. And confession is a word that we don't really talk about a lot, especially in the Baptist church. And I think the reason we don't talk about confession very much is because we think it sounds a little too Catholic. We're, we're afraid of sounding too Catholic, so we don't talk about the word confession very much. And I think because we don't talk about confession very much, it's also something that we're not very good at. 
I don't know that we're good at confession. We're, we're not good at confession when it comes to one another. And I also think maybe we struggle in, in how we confess our sin to the Lord. Uh, because we don't talk about it very much. And I think chapter 9 is very much centered around this idea of confession. We saw in chapter 8 the people respond. You remember when they brought out the law and they began to read it and the people's first response in chapter 8 was sorrow, right? Sorrow and grief. And then Nehemiah and Ezra corrected them and they said, no, for this time, for these days, we are celebrating the festival of booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And so this is a time of rejoicing. Like, don't mourn and weep. There'll be a time for that, but now's not the time for that. Now is the time for rejoicing. And so they followed God's instruction and they, and they celebrated during that time, but now this is after that fe- festival is over. And so now they've gone back to meditating on what God's word has said. Their response was a little out of place at the beginning of chapter 8, but now in chapter 9, because that season has passed, now it's very much in place. That time to, to mourn and grieve over their sin is right now. It's a proper response. And there's some specific things that we see in these verses, how they responded. Um, verse 1 says that they were fasting, wearing sackcloth, and had put dust on their heads. Now, we don't do that sort of thing now, but these were cultural signs of mourning and grief. It's kind of like when you go to a funeral, traditionally people wear dark colors or they wear black to a funeral. Um, this is similar to that. It was a cultural sign of mourning and grief. And their sorrow, um, they, they were expressing sorrow over their sinfulness. They were convicted by God's word. And they expressed their sorrow not just internally, but they expressed their sorrow externally through these, these cultural signs of mourning and grief. Verse 2 says that those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners. You remember in the, the, the directions that we read from God about the festival of booths, he said, bring in everybody who is inside the limits of the city, whether they be Jews or not, foreigners, anybody, let them come and be a part of the celebration of the harvest. But for this time, this was specific for God's people. And so it says that, that the, the Jews separated themselves from the other people because this was something, this was between them and God. It was, it was personal. Um, it was a time of confession for those who were a part of the covenant. And so the people were guilty. They were guilty of breaking God's covenant. And they had been guilty for a long time. And so verse 2 says, because they were experiencing the guilt and conviction of the law, they confessed their sins and iniquity and the iniquities of their ancestors. So we see almost two levels of confession going on at this moment. There's personal confession because it says that they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their ancestors. So there's a confession of personal sin that the people are dealing with, but there's also a confession of national sin sin that they recognized together as a people over a long period of history they've been disobedient and they've broken God's law the ones who had come before them their ancestors had also been unfaithful and their ancestors were part of a pattern 
a pattern of repeated rebellion over and over and over many generations. And they recognize that part of the reason we are in the state that we are in now is because the ones who have come before us have disobeyed. The ones that have come before have been in a repeated pattern of disobedience. And so that's why we are where we are right now. However, their sin was, was personal too because they followed the path of their ancestors. This wasn't just a, a time of blame. This wasn't just a time of confession where everybody was pointing their fingers to the past and saying, well, the reason we're in such shape is because of all of our ancestors, the people who came before us. They weren't playing the blame game. They were saying that that is true, but there's also personal accountability that we have to take because we have followed in their footsteps. We have embraced that pattern of disobedience and we have lived it ourselves. And so there's an important thing, there's an important application that I think that we, sh we should take from this as well. We can look around at the world that we live in now and go, wow, look at the state that we're in. I think there should be a confession that happens. I think we as believers in the world can have the same type of confession that we can look as, a, as the church of Jesus in the world and look back at generations before and say, wow, we have sinned. There are things that we have done that have gotten us to the state that we're in now. Generations before have not been faithful, have not followed, and there's confession in that. But we also can't just point our fingers at the past and blame everything on the ones that came before us. We take accountability for who we are and what we are and what we do right now. And that's, that's what the people were doing. There was brokenness among the people. Verse 3 says that they read from the book of the law of the Lord for a fourth of the day and spent the other fourth of the, another fourth of the day in confession and worship. That would have been at least six hours. At least three hours of the day they were reading God's word and studying it. And another three hours they were spending in worship and confession. At least that. Some scholars say it could have been longer. It could have been as long as like four hours. It could have been an eight-hour time every day that they were spending doing this. We should ask ourselves, when, the, when is the last time we were broken over our sin? This is a good question for us to ask ourselves. Because most of the time when we think about how do, how, how do I respond to the sin in my own life, we usually respond in one of a couple of ways. We either pass responsibility to somebody else. How often have we done that? How often have we heard that from other people? Well, the reason I'm going through what I'm going through now is because of them. I used to jump all over my boys when they would come home from school and they had gotten in trouble. And I would say to them, what happened at school today? And the first thing that would come out of their mouth was, well, this person or this classmate, or my friend did this, and I would immediately go, bop, bop, bop. I, that's not what I ask you. You tell me what you did. Well, we were in class, and my buddy, we, he started doing this. No, no, no. That's natural. We even do it as kids. It's part of our sinful nature. We want to pass responsibility to somebody else. It's this person's fault. 
that I'm struggling with this sin in my life. Or it's these people. I blame it on my parents. I blame it on my church. Blame it on my, my pastor. We can blame it on anybody. So we pass responsibility off or we redefine our sin and make it not sin. We say, well, well, I know what God's word says, but what I'm struggling with or the sin that I'm wrapped up in right now really isn't that bad. And we redefine it and make it not sin. Do we see that happening in our culture every single day? The way to reconcile sin is to make it not sinful. And then there's no problem. But when's the last time that we mourned and grieved over our own sin? There are things in the world that break your heart. Is your own sin one of them? Is the sin that we see in the world something that we grieve over? Or is it something that we just sort of stand as privileged people of God and say, wow, that's a shame. What we see in chapter 9 is a genuine grieving and mourning over sin. And so, beginning in verse 5 is a prayer. And the whole rest of the chapter is a, is a, is a prayer that was offered up to God by the Levites on behalf of the people. And there's some distinctive things about this prayer that I think will give us a model. Say, okay, if confession is something that we're not really good at, and maybe we neglect for these other things, passing responsibility or redefining sin in our life to try to remove the guilt of it, if God's desire is for us to really experience genuine confession from a heart of, of grief and sorrow over sin and the effects of sin, not just in our life, but the effect of sin in the world, like what's a, what's a good model and pattern for that? And so I think we can read this prayer and find that. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us to read it. I'm not going to put it on the screen. But I'm going to kind of give you the steps. And so I, I hope you bring Bibles with you. I hope you don't get too accustomed to reading Scripture on the screen that you actually bring your Bible with you. Because we're just going to read it straight out of the text. We're not going to put it on the screen this morning. But we're going to read some big chunks together. And I'm going to read it over you, and I want you to follow along as we're reading. Um, because I want us to see these parts of this prayer. So we're going to start with a short part in verse 5 of Nehemiah chapter 9. The second half of verse 5 is where the prayer starts. And he says, Blessed, they pray this to God, Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted Above all blessing and praise, you, Lord, are the only God. You created the heavens, the highest heavens with all their stars, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and all the stars of heaven worship you. Now, that's a short part, but it's an important part because the first thing they did was begin with praise and worship. The first thing that came out of their mouths was praise to God. What we've been singing, when we sing songs like Revelation song and worship, this is what we're doing. We're, we're magnifying the attributes of God. And this was an important part of their prayer. Because if we come in humility before God in confession of our sin, the very first thing we have to establish is who he is versus who we are. 
We have to establish that in our own minds, in our own hearts as we come in confession before him. And so they establish from the very beginning, God, there is no one like you. You are holy. You are set apart. You're the creator of all things and you're the giver of all life. To remember who we come before. This is also modeled by us, for us, by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 6, when he gives us the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, what's the very first thing Jesus says? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Praise, adoration, setting God, establishing who he is. So the first thing we should ask is begin with praise and worship. How do we begin our conversations with God? Not just our confession, not just a prayer confession, but any prayer. How do we begin? Do we jump into our prayer time with our laundry list of things we want God to do for us? Do we jump into prayer talking, telling God how horrible our circumstances are? Or is the first thing that we say, God, you are holy. You are right. You are great. You are true. There's nobody like you. And to put him in his proper place because that helps us get in the proper place before him. Okay? So that's the first thing that they did. Is they took a proper posture before God. Now let's keep reading in verse 7. You, the Lord, are the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Earl of the Chaldeans and changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land to the, of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have fulfilled your promise and you are righteous. You saw the oppression of, your ancestor, of our ancestors in Egypt. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all his officials, and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself that endures to this day. You divided the sea before them, and they crossed through it on dry ground. You hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into raging water. You led them with a pillar of cloud by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to illuminate the way they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven. You gave them impartial ordinances, reliable instructions, and good statutes and commands. You revealed your holy Sabbath to them and gave them commands, statutes, and instructions through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for their hunger. You brought them water from the rock for their thirst. You told them to go in and possess the land you had sworn to give them. Here's the second part. They remembered God's call and rescue. This whole section, verses 7 through 15, is remembering what God had done. And what you'll see throughout this entire prayer is they're recounting the whole history of Israel. From the very beginning, all the way through up until the present time. And so they look back and they remember that God had called them. The establish, their establishment as a nation by God through Abraham. How they had been captive by the Egyptians and God rescued them and saved them from captivity in Egypt. And once he took them out of Egypt, 
He did what? He provided for them. He took care of them. He gave them food. He gave them water, provided for them. And then he gave them the commandments. And he goes to the time of Moses and he says, On Mount Sinai, Lord, they say, you gave us your commands and your statutes and they're good. And they're for our protection. And you gave us everything that we needed. I think we should remember God's call and rescue in our lives when we come before him in confession as well. Do you remember when your relationship with God began? Can you, can you recall that? And when you come before him, after you praise him for who he is, you begin to thank him for what he's done already. And you think about where you were before in captivity, in slavery, to sin, and how God rescued and delivered you from that captivity. And then since then, he's provided for you. You may not have been in the promised land all the time. You might have been wandering around in the wilderness, but you recognize that he provided everything that you needed. You were never without. You always had everything you needed. And do you remember and praise him for the fact that he came to you? There was nothing that the Israelites could do to free themselves from captivity in Egypt. They needed a deliverer. They needed somebody to rescue them and bring them out. We can't deliver ourselves from sin. We have to be rescued. We have to be brought out of slavery to sin by Jesus. So they remembered the call and the rescue of God. Do you remember God setting you on a path toward a land that he's promised? Toward a destination that he's promised? We have a promised land too that we're sojourning toward and it's eternity so we come before him praise him for who he is and then we remember his call and his rescue let's keep going let's pick up in verse 16 it says but the tone begins to change here doesn't it because anywhere there's a but that means we're the tone is about to change but our ancestors acted arrogantly they became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. And you did not abandon them. Even after they'd cast an image of a calf for themselves and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And they committed terrible blasphemies. You did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them, guiding them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness 40 years, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You see how the tone begins to change in verse 16. It's remembering who God is, remembering what God's done, but now they begin to understand what they've done. And they look back. Look at all the words that they used to describe their ancestors before them. Arrogant, stiff-necked, not listening, stubborn, arrogant people. And, and this arrogance that he talks about here is more than just 
not doing what you're told. It's a, it's, it's a heart and an attitude condition. Like those of you that are parents, there's a difference between you t- instructing your child to do something and they just don't do it and a child who is arrogant and rebellious and defiant against you. It's not just that they don't do what you say or they forget or neglect it. They stand in direct opposition to you and say, no, I'm not going to do that. It's a heart issue and that's what they're confessing. Not so much that there were things on the list, God, that you wanted, they, you wanted them to do that they just didn't do. God, they were arrogant before you. They were, they were stiff-necked. They thought they knew better. And they obviously didn't. But yet, even in that, what was God's response to their arrogance and their pride? It was compassion. It was love. It was grace. They say, you could have withdrawn your provision from them. You could have taken away the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire so they didn't know what direction to go. You could have taken away their food and their water, but you didn't do that. Even when they made a false god and raised it up and worshipped that false calf idol before you, you still didn't abandon them. How many times have we turned to false gods in our life and and, and chased after something that was so much less even as believers. But God doesn't leave us. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't stop providing. And so they're coming. You see the tone. They're, they're coming to a realization. And look at what our ancestors did and how you responded to them. And it continues. It keeps going. Let's keep reading. Verse 22. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and established boundaries for them. They took possession of the land of King Sion Uh, of Heshbon and of the land of King Og of Bashan. You multiplied their descendants like the stars of the sky and brought them to the land. You told their ancestors to go in and possess. So their descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued the Canaanites who inhabited the land before them and handed their kings and the surrounding peoples over to them to do as they pleased with them. They captured fortified cities and fertile land and took possession of well-supplied houses, cisterns cut out of rocks, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate and were filled, became prosperous, and delighted in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. In their time of distress, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven in your abundant compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the power of their enemies. But as soon as they had relief, They again did what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them to the power of their enemies who dominated them. When they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and rescued them many times in your compassion. You warned them to turn back to your law, but they acted arrogantly and would not obey your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, which a person will live by if he does them. 
They stubbornly resisted, stiffened their necks, and would not obey. You were patient with them for many years. And your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and compassionate God. See, they're going through their history. And they're recounting what's happened. And they see this repeated pattern of rebellion and arrogance before God. And what we see, them, what we see outlined there in that section of chapter 9... Is, is what we see in the book of Judges. If you've ever read through the book of Judges, like what, what they're talking about now is what we see accounted for in the book of Judges. The people would chase after other gods. They would be arrogant and disobedient before the Lord. So he would release the, the, the nations who surround them to, to oppress the people. And then once judgment came on them, at the hands of their enemies, they cried out to God and said, God, where are you? We need you to save us. And what did he do? He saved them. He rescued them. He would raise up a deliverer. Someone who would help lead the people, free them from their oppressors. And then for a short time, the people would praise him. And they would be faithful and they would say, our, our God is great and, we, and we'll be faithful to him. And then what happened very shortly after that? They would chase after idols again. They would be arrogant. It, it, did you notice where it says that they flung your law over their backs? Defiance to you. Folks, we do that. We do that on a regular basis. We do it as individuals. We do it as, as churches. We've certainly done it as a nation. But verse 31, look at it again. What was God's response? However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Do you know why we haven't destroyed ourselves already? It's not because we've maintained ourselves. You know why this nation is still a nation? It's not because we've held it together. It's because God is compassionate and because he's gracious. And he chooses not to abandon us and not to destroy us. And that all comes from him. That doesn't come from us. It's completely from him and his nature. Can we see this pattern in our own lives? Can we come before God and see a repeated pattern of rebellion? How often do I chase after other things? The circumstances of my life go downhill. I, I self-impose judgment on myself by my bad choices. And then I cry out to God, God, save me. Why am I having to go through this? Please deliver me. And what does God do? He's gracious and kind and he doesn't abandon me. And he comes in and he rescues us from our circumstances. And maybe for a short little while, we get faithful back into church and we start reading the Bible again because we're really excited that God took away our bad circumstances. He took away our enemies. But then when everything gets comfortable, we start chasing after other gods again until we get ourselves in a mess and then we cry out to God for help and you know what he does he he rescues us this is what they're confessing and so the prayer ends in these last verses number three was that they recognized their rebellion 
those last two sections that we read, they recognize before we can truly confess our sin to God, we have to recognize that it's there. And then the last part is in verses 32 through 38. They acknowledged their need. Number four. Look at what the prayer ends. So now. Now the prayer has gone through the history. They've looked at everything that their people have been through. And now they say, here we are, God. So now our God, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant, do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us. Our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings until today. They're saying, God, please, please don't turn your back on us. We know that we're guilty just like our ancestors, but as you've been faithful before, please be faithful not to turn our back on, your back on us. Like, see what we're enduring right now. Verse 33, you are righteous concerning all that has happened to us. Because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. They didn't put the blame on God like we do sometimes. God, it's your fault that I'm having to go through this. It's your fault that my life is falling apart. They said, no, you're righteous concerning everything that's happened to us because you've been faithful. God, it's us that have been unfaithful. We are the ones that have turned away and we've created this circumstance for ourselves. Verse 34, our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings you gave them. When they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them and in the spacious and fertile land you set before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Here we are today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. There's some really, really important things that they say. But basically what they're saying is look at the state that we're in now, God, and we know that we've gotten ourselves here. It's not because of you. You've done nothing but been faithful and gracious to us, and we have turned our back on you. And now because of that, our ancestors did it, we've done it, and now here's the state that we're in. And it says we are in great distress I think they were talking about distress in a couple of different ways. One, they were saying there's distress in our circumstances. But two, I think they're also saying we are in great distress in our hearts. And that distress was coming out in their public mourning and grieving. So it's not just our outward circumstances, God, but our hearts are distressed because this is where we are. And so we see the people experience and confess grief over their sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says this. The Apostle Paul is writing and he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. The grief we see in the people here in chapter 9 is a good 
grief. And part of the reason we can know that is because of this principle that the Apostle Paul said. That he says there's two kinds of grief that we can experience, that we can express. There's earthly grief and there's godly grief. And you say, well, what's the difference in those, Eric? I want to tell you just at the, at the very heart of it, earthly grief is a destination. Godly grief is a path. Godly grief is a, is a path to something better. Worldly grief is the destination. And that's what Paul says. He says worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. One immobilizes you. One freezes you where you can't do anything or go anywhere. The other mobilizes you. Godly grief in our life mobilizes us. It moves us to repentance and confession. Worldly grief freezes us. It locks us down where we can't go anywhere. We can't see any direction. We don't know which way to go. So there is a grief that is beneficial. There's a grief that moves us toward a closer relationship with God. Jesus also talked about this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, the Sermon on the Mount. In the Beatitudes, we know the Beatitudes, right? Jesus talks about this kind of grief in verse 4 when he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You may have read the Beatitudes before and thought that Jesus was talking about the kind of grief and sorrow that we go through when tragedy hits our lives, when we lose a loved one. But that's not the kind of grief that Jesus is talking about in verse 4. He's talking about a grief that mourns over sin. And that word blessed literally means happy, fulfilled, and satisfied. So to hear Jesus say, happy, fulfilled, and satisfied are the ones who mourn. You go, what? That's not how mourning feels for me. I don't feel happy. I don't feel satisfied. I don't feel blessed when I'm mourning. But Jesus was talking about that godly grief that Paul was talking about that mourns over sin. I have to ask myself on a regular basis, have I genuinely mourned over my sin? And the word that Jesus used for mourning right there is the strongest Greek term that can be used for the word mourning, for grief. Like the, think, of the thing, think of the thing in your life that has brought the most grief. Maybe it's been a tragedy of some kind. You've lost somebody you've loved. You've been through a difficult circumstance. I want you to think of the greatest moment of grief that you've ever experienced in your life. And what Jesus says is the ones who are blessed are the ones who experience that feeling, that emotion of mourning over their own sin. And I don't know that we do that. It's not just also the one, blessed are the ones who mourn over their own sin, but the ones who mourn over the sin in the world. I think a lot of us have just been programmed to when we see the sin that's in the world, rather than mourning over it, we look over it, like I said before, and go, well, they should know better. We have no compassion for people who are captured in sin, and they don't know the way out. They are slaves in a foreign land. And there's no way that they can come out unless somebody delivers them. And we know that Jesus is the only one that can deliver them. But we see them in, in their own Egypt and go, well, that's a shame. I'm glad I'm not like them. 
Jesus says, blessed are the ones who mourn and grieve over the sin in their own lives and the sin that we see in the world. And let me tell you something else. I cannot experience godly grief over the sin in the world until I experience godly grief over my own sin. And this is something that we miss. If we want to grieve over the sin that we see around us, and it is abundant, there is no doubt. But I cannot point my fingers at the decay around me until my heart has grieved over the sin that lives right here. I don't know that we practice grief enough, but this is the grief that we see in the people in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, and it's a good grief because it moves us toward confession. It moves us toward repentance, and we'll talk about that a little more next time when we're in chapter 10. But it's a good promise. And say, what makes it a good grief? Because this kind of grief comes with a promise. A promise that's in chapter 9 and a promise that Jesus made. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. It is a promise. That when we mourn and grieve over our own sin and sin in the world appropriately, that God listens and he answers and he moves. There should be, have been an ultimate moment in all of our lives. If we claim to be a follower of Jesus, there was a moment in your life when you recognized your sin, as they did here in chapter 9. And you saw the gracious, kind, compassion of God in Jesus on the cross. And because you grieved over your sin, that led you to confession, that led you to repentance for salvation. And Jesus says there's a promise because you have mourned over your sin. There is a promise of comfort. And it comes in this life and there's even a greater comfort that's going to come later. It's an absolute promise for those who mourn over their sin. Revival will not happen in the hearts of God's people until we mourn over our own sin. It's only then that God can move us to repentance that will reignite the joy of our salvation and will ignite the hope of salvation in the lost world around us when they see what the faithfulness of God has done in our lives.